Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Casey Barner, and I'm here with Chase Cannon. We're both attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance and Legal Team, and we're here on the podcast to break down benefits compliance issues for employers. Today, we're going to hit on a topic that goes back to 2004 and George W. Bush, but that is becoming more and more relevant for employers and employees. We're talking, of course, about HSAs or health savings accounts. We're going to hit on some of the recent developments with regard to HSA contribution limits and then talk about some specific legislation that's been introduced in Congress that we've been hearing a lot about in the last few weeks. But first, Chase is going to tell us about the recent news on HSA contribution limits. Lots of fun there. Yeah, thanks, Casey. And first things first, welcome to the podcast. Casey, this is your maiden voyage. Uh, It's great to have you on here. Uh, For those of you who haven't had the pleasure of meeting Casey, he's been on our team for over three years now, has a strong background in legal research and writing, uh, particularly on insurance issues. And we're stoked to have you on the podcast. Um, But he's a fantastic resource for our team. And I'm sure everybody will be getting to know more about you. Uh, But on HSA contributions, last week, the IRS came out with its 2019 HSA contribution limits. They did this through a revenue procedure. Um, This is how they usually, uh, this is how it plays out each year around May or so of a year. The IRS announces contribution limits and numbers relating to the statutory minimum deductible and the out-of-pocket maximums for what are called qualifying High Deductible Health Plans, or HDHPs, as we'll refer to them on the podcast today. But as a quick background to help understand and kind of put this all in context, to be eligible to establish and contribute to an HSA, I have to have coverage under a High Deductible Health Plan, or that HDHP, and I can't have what's called impermissible coverage. Now, we're going to get to what it means to have impermissible coverage here in a minute, but for now, to be qualifying HDHP coverage the HDHP must meet the statutory minimum deductible and maximum out-of-pocket numbers that are outlined by the IRS. Those numbers are indexed for inflation, and so the IRS is tasked with indexing them and then announcing them each year, and they usually make that announcement in May uh, or so of the, of the year prior. In other words, uh, knowing the 2019 numbers now helps carriers and employers understand and plan for the upcoming plan year, Um, Along with that, and probably more importantly for us as individuals, uh, the IRS announces the updated maximum contribution amount limit, and that's the amount I can actually contribute to my HSA in that year. That maximum is tied to the level of coverage I have, and that's broken down into self-only coverage or family coverage, with family coverage being anything other than self-only coverage. So really only two options there on where you can be when it comes to your contribution limits. Uh, But the IRS just announced these numbers uh, for 2019. The minimum statutory deductible actually stayed the same as 2018. That's uh, $1,350 for single-only coverage and $2,700 for family coverage. The out-of-pocket max limits did go up um, to $6,750 for self-only. That's up $100 from 2018 and a $13,500 for family coverage, that's up $200 from 2018. So when you're talking about out-of-pocket limits on expenses, that includes deductibles, co-payments, and co-insurance. 
But for HSA contributions, that's, again, really what most people care about. Um, the max for those with single-only coverage for 2019 is 3500 and uh, up to $7,000 for those with family coverage. So that's a $50 increase from the 2018 numbers. Uh, and again, those are the, the, the numbers most people are interested in. They want to know how much can I contribute to my HSA each year. Thanks for that, Chase. Yeah, so up $50. So that's something for 2018. Wasn't there some drama around that $50 in 2018, though? Like, I believe a few of us have heard that the IRS changed its mind a few times on that one. Isn't that right? Yeah, that is very true. So the IRS announced the 2018 limits last year around this time. Same idea, right? Let's give employers, individuals time to plan. Um, but in March of 2018, just two months ago, they announced a mid-year adjustment to that. Uh, with the mid-year adjustment being attributed to a section of the tax reform law that was passed right at the end of 2017 uh, that required a slight shift in the indexing calculation. So the IRS said, well, we have this change due to this new change in the tax law, and we're going to announce a mid-year adjustment, and that was a decrease in the limit, but only for one of the numbers, and that was for those with family coverage. The maximum um, contribution went down $50 from $6,900 to $6,850. So this sent employers and individual HSA owners or employees into kind of a tizzy here. They weren't quite sure how to handle the changes. And at least some employees, either on their own or through their employers, had already contributed the, the, the full $6,900. So what were those employees to do? Um, but after scrambling for answers on that, and, and for us, we fielded numerous questions on that issue. The IRS at the end of April, so just a few weeks ago now, announced that they were restoring the original 6,900 family contribution max. In other words, JK, dude, we're going back. And just for those who are not in the know or don't read their children's texts, JK means just kidding. So that's a fairly interesting uh, JK moment there, Chase. <laughs> Why did the IRS say they were again changing their minds? Like what? I mean, what's going on here with this process? Yeah, so the reasons for the second change of heart. Remember, the first change of heart was due to this tax reform legislation. Um, this, the second change of heart was due to taxpayer complaints relating to, quote unquote, numerous unanticipated administrative and financial burdens, as well as onerous modifications to payroll and benefit systems to reflect that deduction. But more importantly, and perhaps what the IRS should have picked up on before they made the original announcement, was the fact that there's actually a portion of the HSA rules themselves that say the IRS has to publish the annual inflation adjustments by June 1st of the preceding calendar year. So in other words, the original decrease was actually something they didn't really have the authority to do to begin with. So there's that. But basically, employers either had to readjust their benefit offerings and payroll to go back to the 6900 or they could just leave it at 6850 if they had already adjusted downward because you can always come in under the max. But the bigger issue now um, is that some employers and employees have already made adjustments to reflect the lower HSA contribution limit of 6850. Um, to do that, they distributed out $50 from their HSAs is what is called a curative distribution. That curative distribution helps avoid the excise tax you would normally have to pay for over-contributing to an HSA. Uh, so what do they do now? They've made this $50 uh, distribution. Um, the IRS did provide some guidance on that, thankfully. 
basically if the $50 curative distribution was associated with employer contributions or was employee pre-tax contribution, it's considered a non-qualified distribution subject to a 20% excise tax, plus it's included in gross income. So in other words, if it wasn't for medical expenses, the employee has to pay income and excise taxes on the $50. Um, so not a huge amount there, but it's still $50. It's an additional administrative burden for individuals. Um, but to avoid that tax, the employee will need to repay the $50 to the HSA. And they can do that either through the employer or directly to the HSA bank or trustee. And they'll have to do it by April 15th of 2019. Um, so again, that only matters if the employee took a $50 distribution following that March IRS announcement that decreased the contribution limit. If, employer, if employers or employees did nothing after that, they can really continue as they are now with the $6,900 limit in their plan designs. So it was a whole lot of, uh, like I like to say, a whole lot of cackle for the $50 egg. Um, not a lot of money on this table there and a whole lot of adjustment and headache from it. But it's really in the rear view mirror now and employers should be in a good spot moving forward. With the 2019 numbers now out, employers and carriers can start planning for 2019 and that's all settled. I don't think we'll, we, nobody anticipates another mid-year adjustment from the IRS in 2019. Wow, sounds good, Chase. Well, at least everyone should be squared away on HSA contribution amounts now for 2018 and 2019. And we can just hope that the IRS won't make a similar mid-year adjustment in 2019. Let's shift gears slightly now and take a look at legislation in Congress that could impact HSAs. Specifically, I know the House has introduced legislation on HSAs. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I sure can. So H.R. 5138 is the number of the bill. That was introduced back in early March. Uh, but it seems to be gaining momentum and is attracting the attention of lobbying groups and gaining steam a little bit here. So it will be a good one to pay attention to as we inch through 2018. And this may be a bill that Congress can squeeze through before the elections later this year uh, because it has bipartisan support. Several co-sponsors from both sides are in on this one. And the changes seem to be non-politically charged. So perhaps we'll see something move here. Well, that would be interesting if they could pull it off. Could you tell us a bit more about what's in that bill and what changes it would make? Yeah, well, it does a couple of things. Uh, first, remember earlier we were talking about impermissible coverage. This bill relaxes some of those rules. Um, as a quick background on that, again, you have to have qualifying high deductible coverage and not have what is called impermissible coverage in order to contribute to an HSA. Um, impermissible coverage is generally referred to as first dollar coverage. It relates to anything that could potentially pay the employee's costs under that statutory deductible minimum. So in other words, it's coverage that picks up that deductible on my behalf. The usual suspects there for impermissible coverage and the easiest examples are general purpose FSAs or HRAs. If I have one of those either through my employer or through my spouse's employer, and they cover my expenses that I'm ineligible to contribute to an HSA. Um, permissible coverage includes preventive care. That aligns the ACA's preventive care requirement with the HSA rules. So um, I can go and have immunizations and other routine annual physicals. And the plan covers those costs as preventive care. I don't have to come out of pocket, but the rules say I can still contribute to an HSA because that has to be in there for purposes of the ACA. 
So there's a few examples there with the general purpose HRA or FSA that are clearly impermissible. Um, permissibles include preventive care, but there's other types of covers that have been more in the gray area uh, when it comes to whether they're impermissible or not. And those include telemedicine, drugs or medication that are aimed at treating or managing chronic conditions, and on-site employee clinics, retail health clinics. All of these are a little bit gray. They're more of a, a modern or trendy type ways of delivering healthcare. I don't think the rules have been quite updated to account for them. Uh, but one good example of this is telemedicine. When we do that, obviously, we just call our doctor from our phone or we Skype. Um, it's just another way to receive medical treatment. Um, most believe that it's that's considered impermissible coverage unless the employee has to pay something for it. So in other words, if I'm getting it free, um, it, it, unless it's treated like other doc doctor visits under the high deductible plan, meaning I have to have a copay or coinsurance or something relating to the deductible amount, the telemedicine is impermissible coverage. That's where the legislation would be helpful here. It states that pre-deductible coverage of health services like telehealth, second opinion services, uh, retail clinics, on-site employee clinics, all of that would be considered permissible coverage. Um, so really just clarifying that some of these more modern techniques of healthcare delivery, some newer ideas on add-ons to health plans can be treated as preventive care um, and can be considered permissible coverage that way I can have coverage under those uh, type of add-ons and still be able to contribute to my HSA. So that's the first change. Beyond that, the legislation corrects the definition of dependents to include dependents up to age 26. That's kind of a glitch in the definition right now. You can't actually reimburse expenses tax-free for a dependent up to age 26 from an HSA. That was updated for everything else under the ACA, but never got translated over to the HSA side. Um, the legislation also permits the use of HSA dollars toward wellness benefits, including exercise and other expenses associated with physical activity. So this is actually one thing that's kind of exciting. You could use your HSA for things like gym memberships, home gym equipment, and similar expenses up to a $1,000 cap uh, from your HSA. So you wouldn't be able to uh, use it for golf, hunting, sailing, and riding clubs, so, Casey, you would not have the ability to pay your country club fee uh, tax-free through your HSA that you've been dreaming about, I know. <laughs> and athletic clothes and shoes also would be excluded from that. But if you want to go to Lifetime Fitness, Orange Theory, maybe CrossFit, uh, those could be considered gym memberships that you could pay from your HSA. So that could be an exciting change, um, a little bit of loosening there on what you can use your HSA funds and then the last thing, uh, it would allow an employee to contribute to his or her HSA, even if they had a spouse with a health FSA. So that's one way that employees uh, stumble into trouble with the HSA. They don't understand that if they have this FSA through a spouse, that could potentially disqualify them from an HSA. So it would eliminate that problem that some employees face. Awesome. Thank you, Chase. Anything else that it doesn't currently do that we wish it would do? Yes, but let's talk about three things that hopefully will get added into the discussion as this thing progresses. First, it relates to Medicare enrolled individuals. Right now, as soon as I enroll in Medicare, I'm no longer eligible to contribute to an HSA. I can still use my HSA funds that were in there when I enrolled in Medicare. I can use those funds to pay any medical expense, 
but I can't continue to contribute to the HSA. So lots of people had hoped they'd relax that rule, allow individuals to continue contributing into their Medicare years, particularly since many folks continue working into their Medicare years. So why not allow them to take advantage of that? Right now, it's not in there, so we'll just have to hope for some adjustments there. Um, another one that we've been talking about a lot is uh, direct primary care, or DPCs. The legislation doesn't directly address that. The issue is whether that's considered impermissible coverage for HSA purposes. A DPC seems to fall into some of the other types of programs described in the legislation, such as on-site employee clinics, retail health clinics, or second opinion services but it's not entirely clear and it would be really nice if they just came right out and said direct primary care or DPC arrangements fall in here. Um, so perhaps subsequent IRS regulations after the legislation could clarify that, but we're hoping for some direct clarity on that point, uh, particularly as these DPCs become increasingly pop popular. By the way, if you want to know more about direct primary care arrangements, we did dive into this uh, a couple of podcasts ago, and Suzanne did an amazing job describing the pros and cons and some of the benefits, compliance issues with respect to DPCs. Um, the third thing, though, is that the legislation doesn't appear to discuss increases in the amount you can contribute to an HSA. I think a lot of people were hoping that the legislation would say, hey, let's double the amount we can throw into our HSAs each year. Um, perhaps that will be included in the final version. Um, that was a part of many of the HSA improvement packages we saw working through last year as we were following the repeal and replace debate of the, for the ACA, but we'll have to just wait and see. Um, so more to watch for there, and certainly we've seen laws introduced. They always change as they go through the discussion in both the House and then over to the Senate, and so we'll just have to let all of those play out. But those are three things really that hopefully I think most people would enjoy seeing in there. Great, Chase. So those are some interesting things there in that bill. Before wrapping up, Chase, I wanted to go back to one thing you said earlier regarding telemedicine or other impermissible coverages that are in that gray area currently. You mentioned the employee is ultimately responsible for their HSAs. For example, they have to file forms with their 1040s each year relating to contributions to and distributions from their HSA. And so they'd be on the hook individually if they were contributing to an HSA but weren't actually eligible. We get that. But with telemedicine, that could easily lead to problems with employees, right? So I'm thinking the employee is thinking they're getting this awesome benefit from the employer. And usually employers want to pay for that for employees. I mean, it makes sense. Added as another benefit, so to speak, that they are offering. But you're saying the telemedicine might actually make the employee ineligible for HSA contributions. What's the employer's responsibility there to notify the employee? Do they have to say anything about that? Yeah, that's, that's another issue altogether. Um, this idea of who's responsible for HSA contributions and meeting the appropriate limits. Um, as, we, as you just mentioned, like the employee is the HSA owner. They're the ones who are claiming tax benefits from the HSA arrangement, and they're generally doing that through forms they file alongside their 1040s or their individual federal income tax returns. So employees have to be aware of what they're doing. Right? It's the same as claiming any other tax deduction or tax credit. They need to be able to show proof, if they're ever asked, that they met the requirements for that particular tax deduction or credit. So as an example, Casey, if you were going to contribute nearly $7,000, and that's what we're talking about with a family HSA contribution limit, right? 
if you wanted to contribute $7,000 or close to that to your favorite charity, you'd want to be able to show the receipt, right? So same thing here. You need to show you qualify for the tax advantages that the IRS is bestowing on you. For employers, though, it's tricky. Um, They need to have some reasonable belief that the individual to whom they are contributing or allowing that individual to contribute pre-tax through their cafeteria plan, they need to know that that individual is actually eligible for the HSA. They need to know what they can now know. In other words, if they know the employee is enrolled in the, in the employer's qualifying high deductible plan and that the employee isn't enrolled in some other HRA or FSA or other impermissible coverage that they offer, then they have that reasonable belief that, they, that the employee is HSA eligible. So at that point, the employer could go ahead and allow the employee to contribute pre-tax to their HSA and they can contribute to the HSA on their behalf. So really, the employer is responsible for their purview. They're not responsible for knowing any other type of coverage that the employee may have outside of the employer's offering, but they do need to understand their own, uh, their own environment there. If the employer is aware, though, that the employee has some type of impermissible coverage, the employer probably shouldn't contribute to the employee's HSA. So that's where it becomes tricky. Those gray area impermissible coverage types can raise some of those issues. So that's why we're really hoping this legislation goes through. That will make it a much easier conversation for employers. Uh, But the idea is that while employers don't have the specific responsibility or obligation to educate their employees, they will want to help employees understand what they're getting into. Obviously, NFP can step in and help with that, at least if the employer is our client. Uh, But there needs to be some communication and education going on there as employers become more aware of how their benefit offerings interact with their high deductible plan and HSA plan designs, they can become better educators and assist makers for their employees. So a little bit of interaction there. Um, Obviously, employees look to their employer to help them understand um, the employers bringing these options to the table. And so they do want to take that next step to help employees understand what they're getting and what could potentially be a a roadblock there with an impermissible coverage type that could render the individual HSA ineligible. I couldn't agree more, Chase. Thank you. That's definitely an interesting intersection for sure. Well, thank you, Chase, for walking through this. There's a lot to think about there and we'll anxiously await any HSA legislation that comes to us. We'll keep tabs on that and report on it, of course, through our bi-weekly newsletter, Compliance Corner. In the meantime, though, that sums it up for today. As we like to say on the podcast here, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us.